convince Berlin Hag, hunter of helpless humans, to depart Earth and never return. Both his steel netting, and the tennis net recently used by the Norse god Thor to ensnare his half-brother Loki, were obviously inspired by the brilliant device deployed upon the Baxter building some time ago by Lord Doom. We also have intelligence that an inferior mechanical gladiator, created by the subterranean strongman Tyrannus, has been destroyed by the American monster known as the Hulk. And there are reports that an enormous red beetle of some kind has been terrorizing the northeastern United States. This is Gustav Croft for the VOL. Zero, zero, three. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, three. Here in Latveria we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. And now, our weekly feature on the history of our world's greatest hero, Victor Von Doom, with your host Douglas Woe, by special arrangement with Universe 1218. Thank you, Doombot Q399. Our guest this week is Dr. Ben Saunders, who's the director and founder of the University of Oregon's undergraduate minor in comics and cartoon studies. He's the author of the book, Do the Gods Wear Capes? Spirituality, Fantasy, and Superheroes. And uh, in 2018, he was the chief curator for the multimedia exhibition, Marvel Universe of Superheroes. Ben Saunders, welcome. Thank you so much for uh, coming to the Voice of Latveria. It's so cool to be here. This is a wonderful concept, and it's, it's great to be in touch with you. So thanks for inviting me. Today we're looking at Fantastic Four number 10, uh, cover dated January 1963. This was Doom's third appearance. Uh, it's credited to Stanley with script, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Dick Ayers, and it's a doozy. It is quite a story. Yeah, this is, um, when you proposed this idea, this was the first one that came into my mind, and I thought somebody's bound to have already said they want to do this Uh this issue. So I'm, I'm delighted actually to have a chance to talk about it. It is really early in our history, our appreciation of the character, the history of the character. I, I, th I think of it as the first great Doom story. I really do. The look of the character, I think, is really what dominates our sense of him in his first appearance in, in issue five. Then, you know, he comes back so quickly in issue six, you really have that sense of Lee and Kirby just realizing they have a tiger by the tail and there's this thing that is happening, you know, like the speed with which the Marvel Universe takes off between 1961 and 1963, 1964. It's absolutely mind-blowing and, and it's uh, the pace at which these things are happening. And I always feel like Doom's second appearance is is kind of like, well, we introduced the Submariner, we introduced Doom, now let's just do them together. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so with this story, it starts to feel like um, the relationship between Doom and the, the team, and particularly his relationship with Reed, is the focus of the narrative. And I think that's going to be so significant for, for, the, for our larger sense of the character and yeah, yeah. what the character will become. So I think of this as... as a real step forward in terms of, I don't know, the doom paradigm, if you like. It's it's oddly, it's a step forward uh, for Marvel as well. I mean, Lee and Kirby are on the cover. They are credited on the cover and they actually appear on the cover and in the story. Yeah, this is um, this is the first time, right? 
this is the first time that that Stan and Jack actually show up um, self-reflexively as the creators of the comics. I know that they're mentioned before, but is that right? Uh, Stan had written himself into a few stories uh, back Uh in the 50s, but uh, this is the first time we actually see them in Fantastic Four. Acknowledge that the names signed to the first page are the people making the thing and have some sort of inside knowledge of what's going on in the story inside the story as well. Yes, because it's before even that great moment. I think it's in the, I think it's the following issue, Fantastic Four 11, where they have the answer, the the, the reader's mail directly, and it's yeah. real reader's letters and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the Fantastic Four are totally breaking the fourth wall um, to directly address readers in and the comments in, in their letters. So obviously this is something that, that they were getting excited about. But yeah, this first appearance of Leanne Kirby inside the sort of the diegetic reality of the Marvel Universe, I, I was wondering, well, what does it mean that when that happens, it's Doom rather than the FF that, uh, you know, they're sort of standing around in the, in the office, Lee wistfully looking out of the window. There are a couple of things about their choices here that actually I... I <laughs> have always um, mystified me a little bit. Um, and uh, for instance, that in later appearances of Lee and Kirby in their own comics, they're not embarrassed about showing their own faces. They ca- they caricature themselves. In this, they seem to have gone out of their way not to show their own faces. You have panels where it's clearly Jack, because he's sitting at the drawing board and he's holding a cigar, but it'll be, uh, the perspective will be so that you can't see his face or his hands are over his face at one point. Um, the Stan avatar has got his back to the reader with his hands behind his back as he's looking out of a window, wistfully thinking about how great it would be to come up with another villain. Uh, what, what do you make of that, that decision well, I, to not show their faces? Their avatars don't show their faces either uh, in annual number three. No, the, that's the right. They just, issue, yeah, yeah. yeah they, uh, n- when Nick Fury refuses to let them into the, the wedding. Yeah. 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 So that may have just been like a, a little running joke between them. Who knows? I, I just, there's clearly a point where they decided their faces were well-known enough, or at least maybe Stan's face was well-known enough that uh, they they had to show him. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a curious choice. Egoless in a very egotistical way. Yeah, well, well I wonder about the, 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 it's significant in an odd way because then the villain who walks into the room is also the villain who can't bear to show his own face or look at his own face. And you have this sequence of uh, the character in front of the mirror. Kirby is so well known for, in terms of his talent for spectacle yeah. that we forget sometimes, I think, just how brilliant he is at highly theatrical body language. Oh, yeah. And the, a lot of what I think we respond to in these earliest Doom stories is the ability to project character through posture. Yeah. as much as through the dialogue and through anything that he's doing. This is so much before the contemporary era of the decompressed story. That's the other thing that I'm always reminded about when I go back to the very earliest Marvels, how much happens narratively in sometimes this very compressed space. The comparison I always give to my students is if you take a look at something like the Amazing Fantasy fifteen. Spider-Man origin tale, which is 11 pages in which Uncle Ben appears in, I think, a total of three panels. Wow. Um, it's staggering, isn't it? Yeah. To imagine, you know, like, like the, the, the emotion, of, when you think about Uncle Ben and the emotional weight of that character 
And then the idea that he is going to appear in three panels in that story, and that's it. And then when you read the Bendis Bagley reboot from the early 21st century, Uncle Ben doesn't even die till the fourth issue. So you have this much more protracted, uh, decompressed, as they would call it, idea of, of storytelling. And in that more compressed era, particularly during these very earliest days at Marvel, so much world building and character development has to be done purely visually. Yeah. And again, I think it's something we can we can miss because of the heavy the, the, the sheer volume of Stan's captions and dialogue. <laughs> yeah. um, but actually, so much of what we're, we're responding to is it's one of the things that makes it difficult to write about critically. It's one of the things that actually makes it quite challenging to talk about. I love that this is a, a podcast where we actually can't see it because it sort of accentuates the challenge in a way. Yeah. We're we're trying to talk about this this visual medium, but even when you have it right in front of you and you're showing slides to people, my experience is we t- people tend to gravitate to issues of theme and dialogue and we find it harder to talk about how the art is creating these characters and worlds for us. And I think Kirby is the definition of a world builder, right? Yeah. He's, that's what he does, but he does it through detail, through style, through throwaway stylistic choices. We start with, you know, four pages of really just the Fantastic Four showing off their powers. Like it is the standard, early FF opening sequence. Um, they're all showing what they can do. Uh, Reed is stretching. Sue is being invisible. Johnny is flaming on. And Ben is standing around feeling sorry for himself. I actually was puzzled. Well, Ben is, is sort of, Ben's off with uh, um, Alicia waiting for, uh, uh, Ben has done something a little cheeky, which has set up the flare yep. to summon the, 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 the rest of the team. Uh, when he's not in any kind of danger. I was rereading this and thinking the first couple of pages are truly peculiar because it isn't, I would like to imagine them without the dialogue. It's almost as if, it almost feels like Stan and Jack were having one of their moments where they weren't fully in alignment about what they thought was happening in the first couple of pages. I mean, it is actually, as you describe, it's an opportunity to show off their powers and to sort of do a bit of scene setting. But there is this curious thing where, a door is jammed and they need to move in a hurry. Um, and then Reed essentially wastes time for three or four panels trying to stretch his arm somewhere under the door and not able to see what he's doing. But he's already stopped. You see him prevent Johnny on the second page from using his flame to open the door. Right. And then when Reed fails, Johnny then uses his flame to open the door. <laughs> it's, it's like, and he, and the dialogue has one of these really looks like shoehorned in, you know, this is Stan, the editor thinking, how am I going to explain that? And so he explains it by saying, look, I learned something new. I can concentrate my flame so much that it burns without heat. <laughs> <laughs> that's that. Yeah. That's science. Yeah, you know, that's a great example of 60s Marvel science, right? Yeah, yeah. Sufficiently concentrated flame is not hot. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and um, But the setup that I, I, can't, I kind of feel like somewhere in the marginal notes or something, you know, Kirby had something different in mind here um, and that it's got lost or garbled in the translation and you end up with this really peculiar sort of, don't do that, oh, okay, do it. Yeah. 
kind of, <laughs> um, and it's all uh, uh, a bit of, um, yeah, as you say, the setup is so that they can demonstrate to new readers who are perfectly imaginable with only issue 10, you know, um, to, to show people what these characters can do. So yes, there's something peculiar and I think a little, something about the Lee Kirby method, uh, which oftentimes works wonderfully well, but every now and again, the Marvel method results in these peculiar situations where Stan is having to clarify or more than often than not, nudge our sense of the visuals into a slightly different direction from that which seems to be otherwise going on on the page. Yeah. And I feel like something like that has happened on the first or second page. The team ends up over at uh, Alicia's place and they're looking at her little miniature statues of various people that they fought. Sue moons over Namor for a little while as she does. And then we cut to Stan and Jack's office at Marvel Comics on Madison Avenue. Dr. Doom just walks through the door. Yes. Did someone mention my name? <laughs> uh, they immediately ask him how uh, he survived the death trap that they you know, stuck him with at the end of his previous appearance. And he says, it is a long story. We will not yeah. discuss it now. <laughs> He's going to discuss it later. Takes off his mask, which again, we don't see his face either. No. There's a lot of like not seeing faces here. You know, he doesn't use some sort of, you know, super scientific holographic display to contact uh, the Fantastic Four. He's like, no, here, use this, use this phone yeah, or I'll kill you. There are so many things that are interesting about this page. <laughs> One of them, though, that, I mean, the first, this is, I, again, the first time we've seen Doom remove his mask. Yeah. Right? So this is a, this is a real, and, and it's going to become a trope. Doom yeah. without the mask and the horror and people reacting in horror to the face of doom himself acting in horror to his face. Uh, it's like kiss without makeup. And I think it's really intriguing that um, all of them have the, have the same gestures actually. Uh, it's very curiously rendered, but you know, you have Stan and Jack throwing their arms up over their, their faces so that they don't have to look at doom's face. And in the next panel, Doom is reproducing almost exactly the same gesture in front of the mirror, throwing his arms up so that he can't see his, his own face. When you have a character who permanently wears an iron mask, then the choice of who gets to see behind that mask is obviously going to be thematically significant. And I think it is interesting that the first people who ever see Doom without his mask in the Marvel Universe <laughs> is in fact Stan and Jack. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it couldn't be anyone else somehow, right? Yeah. It, it, only, only the so there's a self-reflexive um, knot here, right down to the point that there is even a mirror on the page, um, and it isn't obvious why it would be there. He's in Stan and Jack's office, but which is full of bulging sacks of fan mail, which mostly has fan mail and drawings on the wall, right? Yeah. But in the image of Doom, there seems to be a mirror. Yeah. Um, uh, when, when he's without them, which he's he's trying not to look into. At some basic level, I suppose part of their logic is to tantalize the reader with the thing that can't be seen. Comics is a medium that is all about showing as telling, you know, and you, you, you tell the story by showing the story. And it's one of the reasons I think that certain kinds of genre are harder to do in comics than maybe in other forms of storytelling. I think horror comics, for example, tend to veer towards the spectacle, the, the gross out rather than suspense. 
because suspense is all about not showing, and that's more difficult to do in the pages of a comic. And here we have we have a real sort of labored act of withholding. And I, it's like these moments, all of this is set up to, I suppose, emphasize uh, and tantalize with, with what it is that we're not going to, to get to see. Doom's face is quite literally the, uh, um, the unseeable, the, uh, the unknowable, the uh, beyond representation. Immediately after this, Doom commits the greatest act of destruction we see him do anywhere in this issue. Yes. He destroys an ashtray. Yes, yes, I know, I know. Wouldn't... <laughs> uh, that villain, that fiend. Yes, it's... A... <laughs> that monstrous despoiler of innocent ashtrays. It's an early PSA, right? This is uh, like Superman <laughs> taking on nicotine, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there is an interesting tension in Doom between nobility and villainy right? right but yeah you're right because the real contrast as you're pointing out here is the nature of the menace that he projects it he has the ability to materially destroy things yeah. but that isn't the threat the yeah. threat is is an emotional threat it's going to be about getting inside the family and mm -hmm. being the being the monster within the family I, you know what this is in line with his earlier appearances, isn't it? When I think of, uh, I reread issue five for for this conversation, and I was thinking about, I was thinking about the way in which the great iconic supervillains often double or reflect their or or um, reverse some feature of the hero. And in this story, one of the reasons I'm attracted to this story is, is it literalizes that idea of doubling. Doom and Reed are going to literally swap places. And that's uh, a clue to the kind of oppositeness um, that Doom represents. But it's already there in issue five. If you think of him as um, his magisterial bearing, his castle fortress, his iron mask, his obsession with ancient magic, He's gothic. When Doom shows up, he is a gothic villain, right down to like the semiotics of the gothic that are there in that very first illustration of him, where he's holding the four like chess pieces. Yep. And there's a vulture so yes. for some reason. Just the vulture, the vulture has a name. The vulture's name is Vulture Von Doom. Vulture Von Doom! <laughs> so good, right? And there are these locked books of mad that say, you know, book of spells or whatever it is, yes. just like sitting uh, on the science and sorcery. Yeah, yeah. So these are all things that mark him not uh, not merely as gothic, right, but as an old world menace. Using that in that sort of classic opposition between America as the new world and, and Europe as the old world, which makes him the symbolic opposite of the Fantastic Four from the beginning, because they're very much a new world family, right? They they are essentially democratic. They're um, a family of, of choice as much as they are a family of origin. They are city dwellers. Um, they are future-oriented explorers uh, of the new frontier of space. On a number of symbolic levels, the Fantastic Four represent new world family. And here is this old world aristocrat. And, and that's why he is their, their opposite number at that point. And at the same time, Doom is very much the thing that Reed could be or could have been had he gone the wrong way. Reed's arrogance could have been Doom's arrogance. Reed's emotional sealed-offness could be 
Doom's like literally putting armor between himself and the world. Yes, I guess part of what's happening here is that a new family still has this sort of patrician presence in it with Reed. Reed is this. This is why this story again, the story number ten, I think, is so important because when Doom becomes Reed, all of the potential possibility for old world logics um, and their uh, the patriarchal logic, um, which is always the problem that people are going to have with Reed, right? That he's he's dad. Yeah. I mean, so at the most literal level, I, I don't just mean patriarchal in the sense of, you know, exploitative and anti-feminist and, and, and uh, but, but in, in the sense of just dad. Dad yeah. has the, the kind of authority that dad has and the undermining of fatherly authority and that line that anyone in a father position has to walk between exerting authority and knowing when to step back and, and not be, become a bully, right? Yeah. That's the burden that Reed carries by nature of the, his role in this universe. He's the most patrician character in the Marvel universe. Yeah. And in these earliest days, they they're showing they're they're, they're kind of leaning into that, right? I mean, he's the he's gray at the temples. He's dressed always very conservatively. When even before they've decided to introduce costumes, Reed is wearing um, a suit and tie. You know, he's got this very conservative dress sense. And he smokes a pipe frequently. Yeah, they they stopped doing that after a while. But in the early days, he's got this sort of who is the actor? It's Fred McMurray, right? Kind of look. Yeah. Uh, he's um, wearing he's wearing a suit and tie when he goes to meet Lee and Kirby at their studio. Right. Yes, he puts on a suit and tie, which it turns out that they're they're you know, they're magic clothes, right? They stretch. They're stretchy, in the, yeah. they're stretchy clothes, but that's exactly right. There's this yeah. sense of him as this uh, the, the the symbolic weight that Reed carries is that that weight of being the patriarch within where the new family, and I suppose this is one of the things that over the longer run the speculative possibilities of the Fantastic Four. And one of the reasons that I love the book so much is that it's a place that tries to reimagine family, right? And, and the, the political and artistic implications of any project that involves that are always, it's, there's something grand always about that, right? Um, because Family is one of the fundamental. It's it's one of the two fundamental metaphors for political organization that we have. There are uh, th there's the body politic in terms of sort of the basic language and rhetoric that we've had for a few couple of thousand years to describe social organization. We metaphorically we tend to lean on either images of the body. We speak, speak of the head of state um, and you know the members of a parliament. Um, and uh, that the, the notion of the body politic, or we think in terms of the family, we speak of founding fathers, fathers of state, mother country, those sorts of ideas of citizenship borrowed from the logic of uh, family, universal brotherhood. Um, you know, these are incredibly compelling metaphors for larger forms of social organization. And I love that the Fantastic Four has is at its heart about that that metaphor of family, and that I think is why. And Doom is the person who's not who who at least initially is the external threat to them. He represents or uh, he's isolated. Right? Right. He's not Doom's not a family guy, and 
over the, the long arc of the series, part of the delight that I've taken in Doom is the way that he's gone from being the outsider who resents and envies the family and wants to destroy it. And then this story actually steps right into it. His, his, the greatest threat is the possibility that Doom could be in it. Um, but now we're at a moment where he is Uncle Doom, you know, where where, yeah. where Valeria <laughs> yeah. refers to him as as that, and he's both. That's in a way, it's the it's the same spirit in a way, though. It's like the he is the twisted uncle who you're not sure you who, who you hope doesn't show up for Thanksgiving, right. and and there is this sort of. Uh, uh, you know, that liminal space of, you know, what is the uncle's role within that larger yeah, family and all that? I love that. I think it was Hickman who started doing this, who had yeah. Valeria starting referred to to Doom as as Uncle Doom. Yeah. And I just think it's it's a genius move. His role early on is to be a monster. I mean, right. he uh, appears the same, the same month as uh, Kirby draws another story called The Monster in the Iron Mask, who has exactly the same design. And a monster is the thing that you need to protect your family from. And then he becomes the monster that has to be accepted into the family. Yes. that's And and in fact, and even becomes kind of like Reed's cooler brother sort of. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah, You know, I mean, at least that's how the kids seem to see him. Valeria seems to see Doom as the uncle who will let, her stay up late and eat ice cream and be you know, you know like not obey the parental rules um she likes hanging out at doom's castle because doom will let her play around in the lab in a way that reed won't you know there's this it's it's a really curious and and all of that i think ultimately rooted sometimes how is that even possible right i mean part of it's just well these are 50 year old franchises and things change but how does that not, how do, it squares with our sense of the sort of the essence of doom, if you like, because from his very first appearance, there are these odd moments that insist on something like nobility in doom. Again, I was really struck rereading issue five. You know, he's telling them to go back and ransack the treasures of the past. And he, and he has this, um, uh, you know, utterly um, uh, ruthless motive. I want the the jewels of Merlin so I can control all the things. <laughs> but when they then say, "Why should we trust him to to bring us back? Why should we take his word on this bargain he's trying to strike with us?" Reed says, "Whatever his other faults, uh, Doom is not a liar." You know, yeah. so there's this odd sense of a kind of a personal moral code. From the begin, from the very beginning, it's there in the in the in the originary DNA of the character. It's into these tiny little spaces of possibility that later creators work and fill out, you know, uh, uh, our larger sense of these details. Um, and it's also there for me where, where Kirby's doing it is is it's it's an interesting contrast with when Ditko draws Doom for Spider-Man number five, yeah. where he's thoroughly menacing, but absolutely to my mind does not project tragic majesty in the way that from the beginning Kirby's got a sort of a magisterial bearing in this character an operatic quality to doom which people are going to be able to do so much more with and which which it feels to me anyway that 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 Ditko doesn't have um uh, that kind of a grasp Ditko's villains aren't operatic in quite that way I think there's something different about their sensibilities 
Reed uh, shows up at the Marvel offices, uh, immediately gets taken out by sleeping gas, which yes. I guess Doom has a sleeping gas gun, instructs I'm... Lee and Kirby to phone the others and uh, tell them to come rescue Reed. And a few hours later, at the secret laboratory of the Master Menace, uh, Doom first of all explains that he has a mental teleporter. Right. He could have taken the cab. Yeah. You know, he used his mental teleporter. And then he tells the story about the ovoids. Yes. This, this comes out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. It is the answer to the question that we raised earlier about, but how did you survive that death trap the last time we saw you? And it's this fantastically weird story about uh, how he was, quote, carried into space on a speeding meteor. Before very long, I was sighted by beings from another galaxy. These are the ovoids. These are aliens who will really only ever appear here, who teach him the secret of body switching and then send him back to Earth. Yes. Of, of all the ways to survive a death trap, you would not think that let's just bring in some aliens for six panels would be one of them. This, I think, is evidence very much for me again of just how much Jack is in the driver's seat. Um, <laughs> This is a thing that Kirby does all through his his career, but particularly with the Fantastic Four, where uh, these throwaway gestures towards you know entire alien races that may or may not ever come back. There's a moment in the last annual that they did, so it's 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 unlike this. It's sort of arguably peak period Lee Kirby FF, the annual where they go into the negative zone and. Um, Annual six, uh, Annihilus. Yeah, yeah Annihilus. Yeah. It introduces Annihilus. There's a scene towards the end of that story where Reed and Johnny and Ben are trapped on a rock being pulled towards an antimatter universe. And Reed speculates for three or four panels, maybe more, about what might be on the other side of an antimatter universe, what kinds of things might be there, what it might mean to encounter beings whose very nature would n negate them. them. Um, it's it's a, an extended speculation on an entirely alternative world, on an entirely alternative universe that's happening while they are standing on rocks in the negative zone in the middle of some <laughs> other plot. Um, it's, it's, it's like these, these ways in which Kirby's imagination will temporarily veer in another direction and then just veer back again right and he could have come up that sure there are, we could come up i suppose with less unlikely ways for doom to survive being carried into space but for a moment what kirby wants to imagine is um a super advanced society I think about the little germ of this right he's decided they're so advanced that they won't recognize doom's evil they, right. <laughs> they will be completely unconcerned with the fact that, that Dr. Doom is Dr. Doom because of how advanced they are. There's something about that already within this tiny, compressed, unconvincing co set of coincidences, right? There is Kirby having a miniature speculation, a kind of bottled speculation about what, okay, if you were that advanced, 
what would you, you know, what might your blind spots actually be? You know, he's, he's sort of, he's thought it that far out for a moment, dropped doom into it. And then, and then also all it needs to be is just the excuse to bring him back. Right. So it, it doesn't have to be thought through more than that. Now there's an alternate reading of this that uh, is a you know, heretical reading. Right. Uh, the heretical reading is that the bit about the ovoids is a lie and that there never was a doom. It's all doom bots and they were all made by Reed. Uh, I love this reading I, because that sits completely inside my, my sort of larger sense of the relationship between doom and, and the team, right? The idea that doom would actually always have been a projection of Reed. That's the ultimate doppelganger thesis, right? Right. right. That's the ultimate, you know, it's all this time we thought that Doom was envious of Reed, but in fact, Doom is a projection of Reed's otherwise repressed malignancy. You know, I, I think that that's, yeah, it's just sort of a classic double reading. Again, I think it's made possible by the fact that they swap places so so convincingly. Yeah. I mean, when they trade places, nobody can tell, right? You'd think that it's not just about physical appearance. And that's one of the interesting things about the story. In a you know, If you are imagining what it would actually be like for someone to be possessed by the spirit of a supervillain, but to still have their own body, that's there, there are you know there are things about like gesture, body language, speech. Actually, towards the end of this story, it's Ben who says Reed doesn't sound like Reed. It's bothering me that Reed doesn't sound like Reed, yeah. and that's how they figure it out. But it takes them a little while to realize that that Reed isn't behaving in in terribly Reed-like like ways, right? So part of the horror of this story, certainly from Reed's perspective, and one of the reasons that I think the story remains powerful even in its all, you know. It's a it's a story made for children. It's kind of cheesy and old at this point, but there is this. It, it's still got this this germ of 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 the horrible, which is that you can switch places with one of the greatest forces of evil on the planet, and people think it's you. They they don't actually recognize that that malignant force behind your skull. They just look at you and think, oh, it's you know, it were it's the switch is initially successful. Um, and that in itself is uh, uh, enables the reading that you just gave, right? The possibility that Reed was never that guy, uh, uh, um, that good a guy, that he's always been a little creepy. The other thing that makes it possible, of course, I suppose, is the, um, again, this is something I noticed about the first, his first appearance. Not only does Reed give you that line, doom isn't a liar, Right. Not only is Doom visually represented with all the semiotics of the Gothic, which will follow him forever, but also when Ben finally gets to clobber him in FF5, it's the first ever Doom bot. Right. You yeah. actually, it is actually a robot, and so Doom and Doom bots also show up together. They are the, 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 there's not a, a it's not a later development. Um, it's like it's right there in the original template for the character is that this is a guy who actually you never really know whether you're in fact talking to doom mm -hmm. um, in fact nine times out of ten you won't be and it, which means that it's perfectly possible or plausible that you never were that there never was a doom that there is only the doom box yeah. yeah and the first thing that reed says when doom uses the avoid mind changing trick to switch bodies with him is Beneath this evil exterior, I am still Mr. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. 
the evil is that his body is it his armor what's the evil part right right yeah well, uh, well and I, I yes i guess i read this thinking about at the same time <laughs> to what has happened to exteriors right because yeah. right next to that you have i think the, one of the other reasons i love this book is the way that <laughs> kirby draws reed's face yeah. because reed still looks like reed but when he is not pretending to be Reed for the other members of the Fantastic Four, he looks like what you would imagine Doom would look like. Right? He's got this 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 wonderfully evil expression on his face, with the eyebrow particularly. That, yep. that there's this thing that Kirby does with Reed Richard Reed Richard's eyebrows when Doom is looking out through through that face. Mm -hmm. And this is something that happens several times. You know, um, and it's it's. It's, it's not just the eyebrows, right? It's angles of the face. I mean, I'm just turning the page and looking at it now as you get a sort of a, a, a semi, a three-quarter profile shot of Reed's yeah. face, but it's doom uh, inside him. It doesn't look like Reed at all. No, no. It there's really an expression does. on his face that you've never seen on, on Reed Richards' face in the previous yeah. nine issues. And yet there's that distinguished gray at the temples. There is that, you know, it's unmistakably Reed Richards. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, this is, this is again, I think, um, for me, it's a test. It's what I, I, I am most interested in trying to figure out how to articulate when I talk about or teach early Fantastic Four, really at any moment in the history of the original Lee Kirby run, this is so much Jack's world building that we are responding to and that we are responding to an idea of, of character and world building through these very difficult to articulate, throw away um, sometimes physical gestures, whether it's the, the scale of the machinery. Two issues previously, it's not a doom issue, so you guys probably haven't won't be talking about it, but you remember Kurgo, um, the alien who has this it's a classic Kirby shot of an alien in a kind of like a lazy boy recliner. Um, and he's got what looks like a lazy Susan next to him with a series of things in it that, you know, it's like he's watching the Fantastic Four on a monitor, um, but he's relaxed and chilled in his alien home. And next to his floating anti-gravity chair is this other floating device, which has a series of arms coming out of it. And in the arms, it's holding all of these different devices that might be useful if you're relaxing in front of a TV monitor in your alien home. So there's something that looks like it might be a remote control device, for example. And then there's something that looks like it's a little dish of like alien pick and mix or something <laughs> like that. You know, then there's something that looks like a little hookah or pipe. Um, and I'm looking, and of course, none of it, it's drawn once. You never see it again in the book. Kurgo never picks up any of these devices out of his alien, you know, Lazy Susan to use. But I feel 100% confident that if you could ask Jack Kirby what each one of those things is, he would tell you what its function is. You know, he will say, oh yeah, that's the remote, that's his car keys, that is some alien pick and mix. Yeah, that's for when he wants to, you know, smoke something in between watching the Fantastic Four on his monitor and changing the channel. He would have an explanation for what every one of those devices is. And there's no reference to it in the text and you don't see it again. That for me is comics world building at its most rich 
Uh, it's done with these extraordinary tiny details of, of drawing. And in this book, I think it's done as much with, it's really done a lot with posture and facial expression. Yeah. It's done with these remarkable expressions that Reed gets on his face when doom is in is inside his head. I just flipped back, right, to the Stan and Jack moment. Stan is looking very heroic, actually, standing yeah. there with his fist clenched, you know, almost sort of facing down doom and saying... Well, that's nice you Jack to draw. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, they beat you in the past, they'll do it again. But doom's posture here is just fabulous. You know, he's got like his his foot up um, uh, on, on the <laughs> table and uh, his arms folded as he leans on his own knee and thigh there. And it's really is like Dr. Doom is, you know, the GQ catalog pose or something. But it's but it's um, a to-the-manner-born kind of aristocratic confidence in his own power. You know, Lee is trying to threaten him and and Doom is just just, you know, Got his got his foot up on the table and just chilling out. You know, it, it's it's a um, so much is done with that pose. Yeah. You get you're getting as much sense of this character from the way Jack has rendered him physically as you are from anything that Lee has written for him in terms of dialogue. As, uh, as that's not just in that immediate moment, but in that that larger sense that we are going to this character that we are going to get to know so well of who Dr. Doom is, that combination of magisterial arrogance and that aristocratic bearing and that commitment to, to the diabolic. Right. They're all there in, in just the way he's standing. The first thing that Ben says as he lifts Doom up is, so Lee and Kirby were right. You did return. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a choice. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, a couple of ways of thinking about this in a Silver Age context, right? I mean, uh, um, what does it mean that Lee and Kirby are so present in this in this universe? There's something very Silver Age about it, right? They don't do it. Marvel doesn't do it really now in the same way. It's running with a discovery that I actually don't think is a Marvel discovery. I think of the... If you think of the beginning of the return of superheroes in our sort of standard narrative as being the mid-50s relaunch of The Flash, right? right? With Bob Kanika taking a character that had been very successful in the 1940s, but I think hadn't even appeared in a DC book for about seven or eight years at this point, had certainly hadn't had his own title since the late 40s, and they're going to bring it back, but it isn't a conventional reboot. It's not the same character. It's not the same origin story. It's not the same costume. He's a super speedster, and he has that name. Well, where does that name come from? In When Kanika brings back The Flash, he writes this scene where Barry Allen, before he gets his powers, is revealed to be a fan of the old Flash comics of the 1940s, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so you you have this way in which all of those prior DC comics are simultaneously incorporated into the world of the new comics, and also placed at, at one sort of diegetic space of removal. They're, they're, they they are um, they're real works of fiction, if I may be paradoxical for a moment, <laughs> right. within within that world. The, so there is a character called The Flash in the world in which Barry Allen lives, but he's a fictional character from comic books from 10 years previously. And what that does is um, uh, or th simultaneously 
um, enrolls all that prior comic book history within the new Flash narrative while placing it at uh, a distance in the world of fiction. And that, that has the effect of making Barry Allen's new ad adventures feel that much more contemporary and authentic, right? It authenticates them by, by, suggest, by creating a, uh, a buffer of, of fic another fictional buffer, right? Lee and Kirby have seen, they, they've seen this and they're just taking it absolutely to the next level. You know, it's, it's a, um, we are going to enroll all of prior timely comics history into this universe through very similar gestures. They start doing it really early on. I mean, it's just as significant that Namor is introduced in the issue prior to Doom's introduction, right? And with that move, they suture a decade worth of prior comic book history into their own narrative, into their own universe. The Marvel universe suddenly gets, exponent it gets exponentially bigger simply by their willingness to drop Namor into that world. Right? Um, and then they start introducing themselves in this fourth wall-breaking wall narrative device, though that gesture of self-reflexivity, there's a number of things that artists might be hoping to achieve by pointing to an artwork and saying, see, this is an artwork, we made this. Um, here we are, the artists inside the artwork. You know, whether it's Velasquez in, uh, you know, in the paint, peeking around from the side of the painting or Alfred Hitchcock wandering by in the background of his own movies. But one effect of this self-reflexive device is to draw attention to the gap between representation and reality in a way that actually makes the representation curiously seem more real. It has this, paradoxically, it has the re reverse effect from the one you'd think it would have. There's, there's, there's a way in which Lee and Kirby are constantly pointing at the, at, the, at the fictionality of the universe, and that's somehow how you know it's real. <laughs> you know? It, it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful use of the device of self-reflexivity, and it's one of the things that I think makes these comics so influential and ahead of their time. Uh, it, 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 they are legitimate you know i mean there are postmodern authors writing in the same period who are just stumbling over exactly these same things this is pop postmodernism there's a wonderful uh pamphlet that marvel published around i think 2002 called the history of marvel's 65 years of the world's most accurate comic books mm -hmm. and it is the history of marvel comics from inside the universe as like the company that made its name for being absolute sticklers for accuracy <laughs> so how does that color your own reading of this material when you come back and look at this earliest stuff? Are you more struck by its um, its lack of sophistication, its naivete, or are you struck by actually, oh, no, I totally see why this would blow up the way that it did? The five or six or seven people who were Marvel in mm -hmm. 61, 62, 63, like, just what they could do was so unbelievably fertile. There's so much stuff that can be drawn out and unpacked from it, even as crude as it is, even as low as it's sometimes aimed. Like it's it's not aiming super high. The part the thing that fascinates me is when I see people who were reading comics in the fifties and early sixties talking about discovering an early issue of Fantastic Four on the newsstand and saying how wildly different it looked to them. And right. that is sometimes invisible for me. That's sometimes hard for me to see as somebody who's just used to all of its tropes. But 
it it was really really different in ways that those five or six or seven people probably did not even realize at the time which is amazing yeah, yeah no i completely agree and i've actually been thinking about how you just put your arms around a problem that i've been trying to address in the classroom when teaching because what i don't want to be doing is a kind of nostalgia studies okay. where you know here are some comics that i happen to have been fortunate fortunate enough to have encountered when i was young enough that they just sort of got their fingerprints all over my brain and and so um and so you know nothing else is ever going to be quite the same or quite as good no matter how you know and i i'm i don't i would like to believe that my investment in these found in the foundational years of marvel is based not merely on its um its its historical priority or my nostalgia for how young i was when i first encountered it but because there is something really inherent in this work that regardless of the fact that they are all working in a children's medium and regardless of the fact that which isn't shouldn't have to be an insult but given the degree to which the culture tends to um regard children's literature and we YA even as having a lower status than other forms of cultural production that's just a thing that we we all have to live with but regardless of the public perception of the medium within which they worked um and with ongoing prejudices that are still quite hard to shake about producing all ages literature there is something groundbreaking about the fantasy formulas that they are generating and that what i want to try to be able to do as a teacher is get the students to sort of exercise their historical imagination so that those things that as you just said it's hard for us to recover it it's hard for us to see it but if you try to get yourself into the space you can i noticed with fantastic four number 1 for example i was just writing about this that if you do look at what they were doing what lee and kirby in particular had been doing for the previous 2 years right and then if you think about what they had both been doing for the previous 10 years it's monster books and romances loom very very large yeah. right and for a while um the superhero has just been you can't give it away you know since late 40s it's just not been a very hot thing and now to the surprise of everyone in the industry the long underwear characters are coming back and okay let's try that let's see let's try that again and but fantastic four number 1 it really it's i mean i'm a little i've always been a little you've got to be skeptical of anything that stan says in terms of his own narratives of how these things come about not because i think he's mendacious all the time although i think sometimes he is but largely because um he's a self mythologizer he's always going to tell you the mythic version of the story and the mythic version of the story is the one where joni his wife says to him well why don't you do it the way you always wanted to do it okay. and now i whether that conversation happened or not whether they had 20 versions of that conversation or one you know i i mean who knows but there does seem to be a kernel of absolute truth to the idea that they were going to try and do something a little different with the superhero formula because when you look at the cover of FF1 there are no generic indicators that it's a superhero book yeah nobody's wearing a costume um and that's like at the time 
I mean, nowadays, the idea of superheroes who don't wear costumes, you know, it's not in and of itself such a stunning break from the genre. But at the time, that it doesn't, you don't know what kind of book this is. Okay. And then when you think about the sorts of things they have been doing, all those monster books, it looks like one of those. Yeah, it, it, it's actually, it, in fact, it looks like there are three monsters on the cover, not one. There's the big monster in the middle. And then there's the flaming crescent, which you can only sort of tell is human because of the head and hands and, and speech balloon. And then there's this creature, the color of dried mud, who is casually destroying a car with the sweep of his hand. And the relation between all of these, these, these elements, it's like, it would be very easy to look at that image and think this is one of those um, 1950s monster movie short story kind of ideas that they, this company and this team has been playing with for, you know, the past two, three years. It's another, it's, it's more of that. And FF number three is in some ways an act of retrenchment. You know, if I was really, it's not, uh, I don't feel this way, but I can totally imagine a certain kind of hardcore enthusiast, the kind of person who always loves the first album better than the, yeah. than the second or third. I saw them when they played in a little club. You know the kind of mentality yeah, yeah. I'm talking about. It's, it's me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a <laughs> constructive vision of reading the Fantastic Four, which is exactly like the first two issues were the best. It all goes wrong with the third issue when they decide to put them in costumes. Um, and, you know, because at that moment, uh, uh, they've sort of surrendered to market forces and have gone commercial. Um, and have abandoned one of the boldest things about the the experiment that 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 made them interesting in the first place, and even in issue three, it is striking how they do and they don't do it right. Looks from the cover a little bit like a relaunch, um, but the the thing can't stay in a costume. Kirby somehow senses they put him in one, yeah. and three panels later, he's ripped it off and is running around in his his little shorts again. You know. Yeah. <laughs> So I, f I almost forget where I'm going. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, so the, the larger point being it takes uh, an act of historical imagination to realize just how startling these things were. But once you realize it, when you, when you start looking for it, you can see it. If you look at the pacing of that first issue, it's 11 pages. We're 11 pages into Fantastic Four, number one, I think, before you even know for sure these are the good guys. Yeah. Otherwise, what you actually have is a series of monsters, a series of monsters. It begins with Sue turning invisible when she sees the signal. It's one of those moments where it's like, she's not like a superhero who just got the summons. You know, It's not the Avengers Assemble moment that we would retroactively construct it as being. It's, um, it's more like she's a sleeper agent who just got the, you know, it's yeah. like, now or and she even talks about her mission we don't know whether it's a good mission or a bad mission and when she turns invisible she violates the um the social expectations of the milieu that she's in right she's yeah. sipping tea with a society friend being very polite and very feminine these things that we associate with with sue and we should probably talk more about sexism and the fantastic four it's a real blind it's a real off-putting factor for us, some of, some of my students but, there, and, but this is a moment which seems to me to be not that. She's sipping tea in this genteel environment. She gets her signal and she turns invisible instantly and walks out. You know, there's no concern for the person that she's left behind. And then she goes down the city street. You have this page wide panel of her knocking people out of the way. And it's every bit as disrupt. It's this ostentatiously disruptive 
thing that she does that's in her own way just as bad as the thing you know walking through the doorway of that shop and then dropping into the subway he's more spectacularly aggressive about it but it's not um uh, uh, it's startling and dis- what sue does is startling and disturbing and so if you're a first time reader of this and i really was trying to just look at it imagining that i'd not seen it before and thinking yeah, you don't know whether these are good guys or bad guys. You don't know wh- whether the, these are, they're going to turn out to be the heroes and we're going to forget how startling their introduction was. But part of the energy of, of that first issue, if you are picking it up off the stands right then in 1961, you would have spent 11 pages there going, what the hell is this? Are these the good guys or the bad guys? And this, this is this a superhero book, a mystery book, a romance book? What what is okay. the yeah. it, it, which is it? Yeah. So you know, all of this is uh, I, I'm waxing lyrical. I think more about the the Fantastic Four in a way than I am about Doom, and I don't know how central to your concerns Bring it that up. is. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think uh, uh, the the sort of to put a kind of a little bow on my soapboxy moment here, I I do think that Lee and Kirby and Ditko in particular uh, are collectively remixing a fantasy cocktail out of elements that were all found. Not you know the whether it's the romance tradition and the suspense and mystery story and the anthology tale. Um, and doing something within the superhero genre, which at this time is still pretty fixed to its medium of the comic book, and and giving us something that, in comic books at least, is entirely original. Yeah, it it, it might not be there. There may be other genre, you know, popular genres where the expanded emotional bandwidth which Lee and Kirby bring to the superhero story. It's always there. It was already there in science fiction and, you know, and the movies and so on, but they're bringing something to the superhero genre and the comic book, which really wasn't there before. I, I think I, I think I'm, I'm prepared to, to, to sort of stake my credentials on that. It's, it's a, it's a new development in a whole genre and and arguably, we're still working within the basic parameters that they established. Yeah. Um, so that even I was thinking about I'm teaching Watchmen next week, uh, a couple of weeks from now. And um, I was thinking about, you know, usually I introduce Watchmen to students by showing them some of the Charlton heroes and talking about, the th- you know. And it just occurred to me, having recently reread World War II era Captain America and then Avengers 4 that actually Lee and Kirby already did what Moore and Gibbons are really doing you know what what happens to Cap, the, the difference between Cap in 1941 and and Cap in Avengers 4 is this it's exactly the same yeah. shift yeah. that you see um between a child and a hero like the question and what they do with Rorschach it's yeah. just the tropes of the of the medium are a little more a little different. It's superficial. It's I I would suggest that it's only superficially more sophisticated. That at its basic, that idea of we're going to expand the emotional bandwidth of this genre is it's the same idea. I think that even Moore and Gibbons are still in the end working in in Lee and Kirby's shadow. 
<laughs> we are all of us in the shadow of Lee and Kirby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's right. But it, it's it I, that was for me that was kind of a new feeling. I was because I remember reading Watchmen when it. I have all kinds of nostalgia about Watchmen when it came out, and it really did feel like a huge, uh, like a, like again a break, like a like a historic break yeah. in the genre. But now I feel less so. I feel like actually no, it's an extension yeah. of of things that were already ha- that Marvel that were happening at Marvel in in the early sixties. Yeah. It's still actually working quite within a framework that that you know we've seen in. Avengers 4, or that maybe we're going to be seeing, or that we're seeing in the Fantastic Four in it, singularly in the character of the Thing. If I had to identify okay. one place where, yeah. where it's happening, it's happening with the Thing. Um, because, you know, his restra- his barely restrained violence, maybe to bring it right back to this story, yeah. that's for me one of the other key moments, right? It's the moment where Reed has managed to free himself. Reed is in Alicia's apartment and Sue... Um, manages thinking that it's still Doctor Doom, manages to disable him, and then the rest of the four arrive, and Ben is filled with rage that Doom has dared to threaten Alicia, and this is um, still early enough in the in the history of the book that Ben's temper and 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 his 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 capacity to become become a threat, you know, as is written in that famous Stanley synopsis for issue one right let's make the thing the heavy he's still the bad you know the potential that the bad guy is in the team is 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 again you know built into sort of the dna of the book early on and then they kind of pull away from that ben doesn't stay being a bad guy but at this stage the character we know he's got that hair trigger temper he can be very dangerous now there's there's an echo of this scene 30 issues later uh, Fantastic Four and Forty, where yes. that's the, the end of another Doom arc, which we will get to in a few episodes here. But it is a confrontation between Ben and Doom, and Ben crushes Doom's hands, like yeah. finally lets his rage out and just like he's yeah. close, and he's about to kill Doom. And Reed comes in and basically says, "No, you're doing it wrong." Right. His humiliation is sufficient. Yeah. Um, defeat and, and Doom won't bother us again now that we've defeated him so conclusively, I think is one of the things he says at that moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's... <laughs> um, but yes, no, you're right. It's, it is. I was actually thinking about that later parallel as well. Um, what we see here is the moment, I suppose, that as readers we've been hoping for and waiting for, which is that... Reed's friends will be capable of recognizing him even when he is entrapped and he's trapped inside the body of Dr. Doom. That there is something innate again about, about identity. I mean, that, and again, that's the larger fear behind all of this, right? That there's something, uh, the fear of any story that involves body swapping is the idea that identity is more fluid than we want to think about it being the, the, the horror that you, that, that your closest friends will no longer recognize you if you no longer look like yourself. And we have here the reverse of that, the hopeful possibility that you, someone will sense, Oh no, this isn't right. I can't, I'm not going to hurt you because you are in fact, my friend. Um, I can see somehow. And Ben doesn't know why he stops, Mm -hmm. you know, but he stops. And I think this is a, uh, uh, another, yeah. So it's a, it's an emotional, um, it's an emotional beat 
in this story, again, of, I think, a kind that this is why kids were eating up Marvel comics. Yeah. There, there is a, you, haven't, you haven't seen emotional beats like this in prior examples of this comic book superhero genre. You just haven't. Yeah. And, and here is a character who is already on the borderline of monster and hero in the shape of the thing, encountering the, the member of the Fantastic Four with whom he has the most vexed relationship because he blames Reed at some level for turning him into that monster. And here is Reed trapped inside Dr. Doom, who he believes has just been threatening his love, the woman who loves him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and at the moment of where we're most primed to expect maximum rage, in other words, it's yeah. clobbering time is what it should be, yeah. and it and it isn't. I think that's again just in such intuitively skilled storytelling from uh, a, you know, and again, I'm gonna I'm gonna attribute it to Kirby. That's Kirby's pacing and plotting here. Yeah. Um, and and then you know on the facing page we have uh, Doom as Reed doing that eyebrow thing again you know (laughs) interestingly that scene where ben is about to demolish reed and doom's body at first reed doesn't call him ben he says no thing you can't you mustn't hear me thing hear me doesn't call him ben calls him thing could you be meaner yeah it's it's a curious and actually (laughs) but but then when when the thing slash ben doesn't actually strike when he he then calls him ben yeah it's your instinct ben i knew it would save me oh that's a nice observation and Mm -hmm. i wonder how in control of this sometimes stan is these are because these would be stan's choices obviously um and stan neither stan nor jack have have the time to be super self-conscious about what it is that they're doing right they're moving at an incredible pace this is the kind of parallel that the people who don't take comics seriously would sneer at me for. (laughs) I'm reminded of discovering, if you look at the earliest printed version of The Merchant of Venice, which I believe is the folio text. I don't think there is a quarto text, although I could be getting that wrong. I can never quite remember which ones exist in... But there's no manuscripts for for the folks out there who are not Shakespeare scholars, right? We don't have any of those famous plays in Shakespeare's hand. What we have are early printed versions transcribed from what we assume are handwritten documents. And sometimes those earliest printed versions are inconsistent in their assignment of names. And in the case of The Merchant of Venice, notorious for its representation of a Jewish character who is seen as uh, quite correctly as an anti-Semitic stereotype, but who also has these moments where he's given a sort of a more rounded personality. In the earliest printed version of that text, Shakespeare seems to be switching almost unconsciously between referring him to by name as Shylock, the abbreviate, the speech prefix is mm-hmm. shy. And at that moment, the character has a name. And it's, it is at the moments when the character is at his most sympathetic. And so he'll be talking about his daughter or talking about the history of abuse that he has experienced as, as a, a Jewish person in Christian culture. And Shakespeare will give him the speech prefix shy all the way through. Yeah. And then in this his final scene, where he's behaving at his most caricature unpleasant, banging on the table and demanding his pound of flesh, he's referred to throughout the text by the speech prefix Jew. Hmm. Not actually referred to by name, but by 
a collective uh, identity, which is obviously seen as a, you know, um, a looked down upon community in that culture. And so that's which I just think that's an incredibly revealing shift, right? That as the right, when the writer is imagining the character as more rounded, he has a name. And when the character is behaving in ways that are more stereotypically negative, um, he doesn't have a name and he's reduced to his religious identity. It would be interesting to look at these moments in the Fantastic Four for when the thing switches between Thing and Ben and Mm -hmm. when Ben does it to himself. Because I think there are times when Lee does it very consciously. And I think there are other times where it's less clear in Lee's mind, right? And I would suggest maybe at this moment, he's calling Reed's calling him Thing because the Thing is behaving in his most scarily Thing-like way. It's not Reed that we're seeing here. In other words, it's Stan. Stan Stan identifying Ben behaving in a scary way, which makes him the thing. And then the moment that he stops being that, he becomes Ben again. So there you go. Shakespeare and Stanley. Stan would be flattered by by that comparison. (laughs) I'm I'm sure he would. (laughs) There's uh, the final scene of this issue is... Again, very curious. We get a kind of you know judgment of Solomon moment. You know, how do we tell uh, which is the real Doom and which is the real Reed? Right. The Human Torch uses his powers and oh, once again, like the Torch keeps coming up with one-time only uses for his powers here. Right. Uh, right. In this case, uh, he's creating a heat mirage, making it look like a stick of dynamite from construction going on down the street below is there in the room. This is Marvel science at its most um, unlikely and plot convenient, right? I mean, yeah. and you look at it and you think, well, why does there need to be an actual stick of dynamite in order to summon up a mirage of one? Yeah. That, that would, you'd need to, if you had mirrors involved, it, it, that would make it, sense. Johnny's perfectly capable of creating illusions. Right, yeah. Especially it, if things are red. No, there's nothing about that that actually makes sense. No. But of course, you're quite right. The point of it is that, as you already said, it's sort of a Judgment of Solomon moment. To re- it, it's, it's, it's a device to reveal character rather than a device to advance plot. Yeah, so what, what happens is that Reed and Doom's body uh, immediately says, Dynamite about to go off, got to pull the fuse before Sue and the others are injured. And Doom and Reed's body says, Dynamite, I'll, sl- I'll save myself by slithering up this event. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So of and course then, they know who the real one is. Yeah, and, and and so character is revealed through through these these this behavior. Reed behaves with uncharacteristic cowardice. Doom behaves with uncharacteristic bravery and nobility, and to save others. And that's and as a result, the Fantastic Four finally realize what what has happened. And Doom quote unthinkingly relaxes his mental control over the two bodies. He has been controlling this all along. Right. And they switch back. And this is, well, this again, I think, is an example of, you know, we are now on the penultimate page. And I think it's, uh, again, a sense, uh, I would take this as further evidence of the degree. It sound, I sound like I'm being, I feel like I'm being awfully, it's, I sound like I'm being hostile to to Stan uh, in a kind of, uh, and very pro-Jack. And I don't, I'm, you know, I'm actually somebody who, who, for for me, you know, I believe that the absence of either of these um, incredibly creative and hardworking gentlemen, there's no marvel. I mean, right. I'm a truly, uh, there are people who are much more hostile 
to to stand than than I am, and uh, there are perhaps people who maybe are more partisan in his favor than I am. But I'm just basing these statements on what we all know Great. to be the me- the way these comics were made. And so, you know, I hope I don't sound like I'm being hostile to Stan, but I think one of the reasons the story um, unfolds in the way that it does over these last two pages is because Jack is in the driver's seat narratively, and Jack has a way, especially in these very early issues of Fantastic Four, of getting so caught up in his own story, of taking these little side paths, you know, the story of the ovoids that you already mm-hmm. mentioned. He does Fantastic Four number one. It's it's a really good illustration of it. You know, they've got 10 or 11 pages into introducing the team, another three or four pages intro- telling the origin story so that the actual battle with the Mole Man becomes inevitably anticlimactic and has to get wrapped up really quickly. Something like that is happening here in these last two. It's like Jack always seems to realize on page 19 or 20 of his 22 pages, like I've only got one page left to wrap up this story. And so what you have here is um, something like that. This once, um, Once the difference between read Doom and Doom read has been established, that's sufficient now that we've got a, they're just going to switch back. We're not going to have a labored narrative about how they switch bodies back. It's going to happen in one panel. And then there isn't going to be a big climactic battle between Doom and the team. As you said, as you already pointed out, the most aggressive thing Doom actually does is destroy an ashtray. So instead of getting that, you know, he fires his laser finger once here, but in the, but he's already been caught in the beam He's already been hoisted by his own petard, right? Yes. He's already uh, been the, the device that he created to kill the remaining Fantastic Four while he was in Reed's body is turned on him, and the story wraps up with him vanishing into uh, instead of vanishing into outer space, he now vanishes into inner space, and and it happens in what six panels, eight panels. And it's, yeah. I really do feel it's because, like, Jack ran out of space. And uh, <laughs> and yet, on page 22, like, right before the last page, those last two panels, they are both distant shots of Doom surrounded by the four. Isn't that great? Flying, pretty much identical in composition, just figures moved around a little bit. Mm-hmm. They don't both need to be there. No, it's true. It's it, true. It, I wonder if there was something else there and that was some sort of last minute substitution because he, you know, the first of those panels, he's saying, Stop, stay back, all of you. I'm still Dr. Doom. You'll never bring me to justice. Do you hear? I'll find a way to beat you yet. Mm-hmm. Next panel. Back, I say. None may lay a hand on Dr. Doom. I still have one more ace I can play. That, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that is a... Um... That's a re- it's really interesting that you point that out. And my, my own instinct is that it is intended and was always there. And it's a moment of cinematic melodrama um, in a way that, um, uh, uh, that often finds its way into these, these, these works, into Kirby's works. Kirby has, um, the reason that they're both there is to give us another kind of emotional beat, right? The villain is defeated Mm -hmm. and we are allowed to linger, not so much over his defeat as his fear. 
Yeah. And what you see is, 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 is the, the, the menace has been revert in that first panel that you point out, they're a little bit further away from him. In the second one, they get, they're moving closer, all of them moving closer to him. And so that sense of doom under threat um, is 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 what I is what I see in that in that sequence. I see that I, I think Kirby is enjoying drawing out the moment of of the of the villain's distress, regardless of the fact that actually I think you're quite right. He doesn't really have a panel to spare to do it. Yeah. Narratively, it, it you know we're going to have to get an awful lot of information compressed here. Um, uh, but but emotionally it makes sense as a as an extended beat oddly you would think for somebody who has armored up who has mm-hmm. entirely covered his body in metal that it would protect him against stuff like his you know, reducing size beam in fact his armor does nothing in the story a few pages earlier Sue whacks him over the head with a vase and that takes yes. him out. Yes, and, and we're given the convenient speech. This is again a moment where Stan has to step in to make sense of Jack's inconsistencies <laughs> because um, Sue does that and she says, lucky I struck a vulnerable spot. <laughs> um, which is pretty good. Yes, it's very uh, lucky is indeed the word, lady, because the guy is head to foot in armor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and she and you're using what a vase which doesn't even seem to be broken. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's a very small vase too. Yeah, like, this is not, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, it, it's it's a um, that I think is again a classic illustration of the kinds of narrative. Um, uh, it's not quite. A, it's not a fail, um, but the. <laughs> Uh, but it is a moment of it's a kludge. It's, it's, yeah. it's yes. It's an, it, it, there are moments of dramatic inconsistency yeah. that are a function of the working method, yeah. which is that you you have a um, no full script, that you have an artist going uh, working with what may be a two or three sentence synopsis, possibly only from a phone call. Um, that he has then, that artist has then penciled the entire 22-page story and um, at high speed, at breakneck speed, yeah, yeah. probably at the rate of two two full pages a day. And, and then the, More than that, I think. Maybe more than that. Like yeah, four pages could, a day, I think. Was maybe, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I mean, his, yeah. at his at his peak, right? I mean, you know, it, it's it, he, he's doing that kind of a turn. Yeah, yeah his turnover is, is... So an incredibly rapid... Um, pacing and plotting of this entire narrative in, in its pencils, which then goes to Stan and he looks at a couple of these moments and is, is going to be thinking to himself, that's great, that's great. Oh, Jack, what did you mean here? I guess I have to come up with something in the dialogue to cover that and, and it'll be okay. Well, and of course it is. It's always for, you know, we, we notice it now <laughs> as, as fully adult readers with hindsight looking at this material, which is more than, you know, 60 years old, yeah. yeah. You know, we, we see all of that now, but I think that in, you know, again, in its, it's, in it, in its immediate context, it's, it's not going to trouble to the original yeah. audience. And so we have this, uh, we have this, just these disjunctions, these moments of um, narrative inconsistency that are best explained, I think, uh, by the working method. Having read the first three stories now, what do we know about Doom now that we didn't know before this issue? Uh, that's a great question. Yes, I think 
what this story has done is made clear that the key dynamic between Doom and the Fantastic Four is Reed. Reed is the vector. And that is less clear from his first two appearances um, where he wants to destroy the Fantastic... I mean, initially, he just wants to use the FF. Yeah. I mean, when Doom first appears... His, his motive is to get them to do something um, dangerous for him, right? right? Um, it's to, ina- to use their powers to his advantage. Then when he realizes how potentially threatening to him they are, he teams up with Namor and it has a sort of a two birds with one stone logic that's driving that classic first great supervillain team up. Um, because this, one of the things that's striking to me about Doom and FF6 is the speed of the betrayal. Now, he, he, he has this great scene where he's the, the voice of Satan standing behind Namor, putting these ideas in his head. And, and once he's drawn him in and gets Namor to do the bad thing, then the moment he thinks he can wipe out the Fantastic Four and Namor in one go, he does it. He takes that choice. And so what we see there is Doom's ruthlessness but also his overreaching and his indiscriminate sense of you know anyone who gets in my way they they must be removed and so at that point the submariner and the fantastic four they're equivalent threats to to the doom master plan and they're all going to be taken out so what you've learned about him and at that stage is um essentially besides all the sort of the, as i've said the sort of the semiotics of the gothic yeah. besides the fact that he's just this toweringly gothic villain with the, those magisterial science and sorcery qualities he's also um utterly ruthless and um pragmatic in his uh willingness to sort of he's tackling the fantastic four because they maybe they could be useful to him or a threat to him with yeah. this story we realize it's, it's about Reed in some way that we just didn't know. And, of course, we've, we've been given more insight. We know that Doom's face was disfigured from his the, the brief three-panel origin tale. We haven't seen Doom's own emotional reaction to his disfigurement. Right. So we're given a lot, of, uh, a lot more emotional resonance, finally, for the character, I think. We're, we're given a sense of his, his menace and his magisterially gothic qualities have been established what has not been established is the degree his tragedy and and his envy and i think those are the things that come to the surface here in ways that later stories are going to be able to more fully develop and that i think much later writers are really going to run with yeah. that uh, i'm i'm not i'd be really interested to listen to all of your subsequent guests as you talk about the later stories in the lee kirby run because i'm inclined to think that Doom's sense of wounded narcissism never gets much deeper than it is sketched out to be here. It might we might see it over a few more panels, but it's that the, 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 that that idea of of um, this being a character who's fundamentally motivated by a narcissistic wound. Yeah. I don't think it gets any more developed really under the Lee Kirby run than it has been suggested here. Yeah. And, and so that's, yeah, that's huge. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's a kind of, now, and I'd love to I'd be very happy to be proved wrong about that, you know, and I don't have enough of an instant recall of every Lee Kirby Doom story to entirely confidently assert that. 
But I think that that's now that's what the with the third appearance, we've got that now as well. Yeah. This is a narcissistically wounded character. Yes. And then uh, next time, uh, in fact, next week, when Arthur Wyatt is here, we'll be talking about Doom's journey to the microverse. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the first time we see him taking on a sort of imperial role before we have even heard of Latveria. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And again, it's like the uh, the odd parallels that, that, that I now see, right? Because on the one hand, I was sketching how in you know doom is an opposite figure a mirror in the sense of a reversal of um the fantastic four and being an isolated old world aristocrat in opposition to a united new world essentially democratic um science oriented family right i mean and that's that's mirror as reversal but what you are reminding me is that he's also he shares with them that explorer's instinct. Actually, he's going to start getting that now. His his journey to out his journeys into outer space, his journeys into inner space, yeah. his journeys of exploration. Uh, he really is uh, kind of uh, again the parallels with Reed, yeah. in particular, are are going to emerge more and more strongly. I think as the character hangs around. Is there's a single thing that I would just say? You know, when I keep coming back to this stuff, it's how to do world building with design details of design posture and gesture and costume because that for me is it's so easy to be overshadowed by stan's uniquely um, memorable and recognizable dialogue that and we tend as readers to home in on the words as the main sort of thematic and storytelling elements and I really think that for me, the challenge of trying to talk about this and the pleasure of it is to try and find ways of articulating how so much of our sense of this very powerful character comes from not what he says, but the way that he is drawn. Dr. Ben Saunders, thank you so much. Next week, I'll be talking to comics writer Arthur Wyatt about Fantastic Four, number 16 and 17. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflatveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Wolk for the VOL. Zero, zero, three. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, three. Coming soon to Voice of Latveria, a documentary series on the Croft family's expulsion of vampires from our nation's borders in the 19th century continues. This concludes our broadcast day. May Lord Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die. Zero, zero, three.